get started, okay? They, they have all these disclaimers of everything you're supposed to do. I don't have any drug money. I don't have any, not going to gain anything out of this. But I have ulterior motives. And I look around and I see some people with comparable hair as mine. This is not aimed towards you as much as I am aimed towards those that are younger, those in the back of babies. Let the babies cry. But, but ulteriorly, you're the future of missions. You're the future of touching people from around the world for Jesus Christ. And uh, my, my particular focus, and to be real honest with you, is Muslims. There's only 1.5 billion Muslims out there that need a touch and a unique touch and a change of methods that you potentially can offer. And, uh, you know, I come here and I, I'm older. Uh, I listen to new methods on the teams going into places that historically many people didn't want to be caught dead in. Or, and I think, this is great. This is great. It's hard for us old dogs to learn new tricks. But I just want to say, there's exciting stuff on the, the horizons. People talk about dreams and visions, and I always thought that that had to be some unusual people. And then my wife introduces me to a book a couple of weeks ago on dreams and visions, and I see people, and I can't explain it, seeing Jesus, or seeing a building, or seeing something that was the link to bring them to Jesus Christ. Now, uh, Lewis Carter yesterday introduced uh, his talk with a, a life verse. I'm not sure this is a life verse, but this is a verse that meant a lot to me. And this tells you where my ulterior motive ultimately is in my serious moments. Uh, Matthew 15, 30 and 31 says, Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well the lame walking and the blind seeing and the ulterior motive next part of the verse next sentence and they praise the God of Israel and ultimately our goal is to bring praise to the God of Israel now uh, I'm a peculiar person when I was in medical school somebody had said to me you're going to work with kids I'd have said you're insane I mean they can't talk to you they wet on you. I mean, they do all types of nasty things to you. But I love my work with children. And uh, this slide shows kids I knew. Some of them are dead. Some of them are alive. There's a Samburu there. Pardon me. There's a uh, Somali there. There's a Maasai there. There's a Somali, th- another Somali there. And just a whole variety of kids that were very special to me. Now, Africa's was my focus. My wife and I met on the way to InterVarsity's missionary camp. Uh, I was interested in somewhere in the world. She was interested in Africa, and I was interested in her, so we decided we'd compromise. <laughs> and we've been married 48 and a half years. Same wife, I just want to tell you that. <laughs> now, what, what I really think, and, and this is... Maybe a, an unusual thought for you is nothing happens by chance in the lives of those wanting to please God. I mean, that's just an accident or a variety of other things. Nothing happens by chance. Oh, why do we let telephones get to us? Um, anyhow, 
if I'd have had my dreams of what I wanted to be when I was a teenager, I'd have been a third baseman for the Los Angeles Angels. That was success for me. And uh, 1953, I went to a little church on a, on a big day. There was about half as many people as in this room. And uh, I committed my life to Jesus Christ. And within a year, I had three motives in life. I wanted to be uh, a doctor, I wanted to be a missionary, and I wanted to be an effective Christian. And God spent the next ten years getting those in the right order. So I'd say, I'll serve you anywhere in any capacity, but I want to be yours. Now, in 1964, I met Millie. Uh, about one year later, maybe a little less than a year, we were married. It worked. Uh, uh, I was in medical school. At the time, I'd gone to a community college called Compton College. None of you know where Compton, California is. It's the home of the bad rap today. I went on to UCLA and went on to Hopkins. And uh, every day at Hopkins, you walked through this rotunda, and there was a two-story statue of Christ that said, Come Come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. And so Christ entered, uh, uh, met me every morning when I went to class. It was wonderful. 1966, we were married. Uh, Millie and I went to Africa. I tell people I took my wife to London for our first anniversary. They're very impressed. And it was just a, it was just a stop on the way to Africa. <laughs> uh, we had a great time. We knew, reaffirmed our vision for where God wanted us in life. 1967, I finished medical school, and in 1972, we went back to Africa for five months, DRC, Kenya, and then went into the U.S. Air Force. I, I didn't want to go in the Air Force, but it was two of the greatest years of our lives. Made more friends, uh, established more relationships, matured more of our spiritual skills. Uh, 1976, Millie and I, with three small children by this time, you can't, I can't see you over there, Harvey. <laughs> uh, uh, we, were, we were on our way back to, uh, pardon me, uh, a creative access nation. I'm going to leave it at that. It's a country that's a closed country. It's a country where my oldest son and his wife and four boys now live. When we arrived in that country, there was one known Christian for about 300,000 people. Uh, I was uh, the doctor in the main government hospital. Uh, I was the only surgeon in that hospital. I was the chief of surgery and the chief of obstetrics and gynecology. I'll say that to my gynecologic scan, uh, friend. The only problem was that there was an, I was the doctor that took care of all the surgical needs, and there was one other doctor. He had 200 beds. I had 150 beds. So I can go back to the people and say one of the dreams of medical school was to be the chief of surgery. Uh, one of... Those things came true right then. Uh, today, 20 years later, there's probably about 50 Christians in that island. It's a slow growth. It's not a quick growth. Uh, this is pictures of us at that time. The guy with all the hair is me. And uh, uh, those were our small kids. Millie was pregnant with our twins. We have uh, five natural kids. We have two adopted kids of a different color. We have two Kenyan boys. Uh, my young, I, I'm a, a little bit of an older man for an 18-year-old son. I have an 18-year-old son that will graduate from high school this year. I have a son that will graduate from college this year. I have a son that will graduate from seminary this year. So we're, we're busy. While we were there, not only did I have uh, two, 150 surgical beds and get to do everything that came, because if, they, if we didn't do it, there was no place to send them. Our volcano erupted. Our government collapsed. 
and the whole place went to pieces. So my secret dreams, yes, was to be a third baseman, one was to be the chief of surgery, and one was to be an AOA member. Now, if any of you ever wonder, uh, I was not the quality in medical school to be an AOA member, but I did become, as I said, the chief of surgery, and in 2011, they awarded me an honorary AOA. And I know that everybody in my class would have snickered if they even thought about that. <laughs> 1978, we were expelled from that creative access country, and we went over to Kajabi, where we spent 33 years. When we first went there, uh, the hospital, it's now 280 beds, was about 70 beds. Uh, some of you were there about that time. Uh, we had two surgeons and one family practitioner. It was a pretty meager time. Uh, now, for those of you who don't know Africa well, some of you do know Africa well. In fact, some of you know it so well because you came from there. But uh, in the continent of Africa, you can put the USA, China, Western Europe, India, and Argentina. That's the magnitude of that, that continent. I lived in Kenya, just north of Nairobi, about 45 minutes. Uh, this was a view of our hospital recently. The green roof uh, place down in the left lower corner, the left lower corner, if you can say that, is what's called was called Bethany Crippled Children's Center. Is now the Cure International Children's Hospital. Uh, we began that in 1998. Uh, I'll tell you more about that later. So today I'm talking to a group of people that don't know me, and I don't know you. I know some of you, but I don't know a lot of you. Uh, I just ask, and what unique role are you now playing in the kingdom of God? And in your imagination, what innovative way might God use the rest of your life, even out of your comfort zone? Let me remind you, nobody says you have to work in your comfort zone. Nobody says you have to be a master of all trades. I told somebody yesterday, I said, if you're going to wait till you have all the skills you think you need before you go to Africa, you'll never get there. You'll never get there. Now, some of us surgical types can read a little bit. At least most of the surgical texts have pictures, so we can at least look at the pictures. So, things you don't know, you may be the only one able to provide that care. And you want to be prepared to let God use you in ways beyond your ability. That's not to mean you're, you're negligent. What's your definition of success? I say that particularly for the younger people. Is success material things? Uh, is success receiving recognition that you never had? Or where does God fit into your definition of success? Now, Bob Pierce, uh, founder of World Vision, founder of uh, Samaritan's Purse, said, Lord, I give you license to interfere in my life and plans in any, at any time and in any way and at any cost to me. And if I were recommending to my kids, which I have, I'd say put that in your Bible. But put it in a place you can see fairly re often so that you can see what God might have for your life. In any way, at any cost to me. The other thing he said is, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. Now, uh, when he leads you into circumstances that you're not prepared for, just realize that God may be the one that is trying to break your heart enough that you can understand his compassion for people. Uh, UNICEF says uh, with regard to under five mortalities, it doesn't change very much from year to year. Nine out of the worst ten countries are in Africa. The only exception is Afghanistan. Nineteen out of the worst twenty countries in Africa, uh, pardon me, in the world are in Africa. And 35 out of the worst 40 countries are in Africa. 
So there's a lot to do if you're just looking at general childhood health. If you look at this, this is a map of the world that shows the, the places, the countries with a critical shortage of medical workers. And all those countries in orange. Uh, 1.3 billion people live on less than a dollar a day. Try going to McDonald's someday and see what you can buy for a dollar. I don't even think if you add tax in, you can buy a drink in that place for a dollar. Uh, 34,000 children die every day of hunger and preventable disease, and 17 million people die each year for things that we could prevent. So infant mortality is nine times as high in low-income countries as they are in other countries, and most of Africa is like that. I'm setting a stage uh, to what I'm going to preach a little bit later. My wife, by the way, says, Dick, don't preach. Preachers can do better than that. Tell stories. So we're going to stick around that, that topic. This tells you about what these countries are living on. This is the amount that people survive on in those countries. So in 1966, when we, I first went to Kajabi, I was a medical student. Uh, the day I arrived, uh, the other doctor, the other doctor left to go to the northern frontier. All the nurses looked at me and said, you're the doctor. Every one of the nurses there practically knew more than I did. And so when I wanted a consult, I went to the nurses. We had one doctor on the station that had three or four little kids. She came down one day a week. First Sunday I was there, I went in, and I diagnosed a ruptured uterus. And I went up to this other doctor, and she had had one year of psychiatric training and had been in the operating room a few times. I said, uh, Ellen, we have a, ch a lady with a ruptured uterus. Could you come down and take care of her? She was scared to death. My first time in church in that, that location, I walked in the back door, walked straight to the front, and I said, I need blood donors. It was a different time. It was a different time. We had a delivery room that looked like a closet. Uh, we had possibly 50 operations a month and a handful of nurses, missionary nurses, and no legal national nurses. 2009, we had 285 beds. We did 9,000 operations, and we had a lot of outpatients and a lot of admissions and a lot of deliveries. Our hospital had grown. The other way it had grown is we'd gone, in 2010, we had three general surgeons, two general surgical residents. I think there's three or four now. Uh, four orthopedists and four orthopedic residents, and you can read it as much as, I, as there. Uh, yes, I'm pretty biased toward the surgical field, but we do have worked with the family practitioners and others too. Uh, as far as training, and Dr. Bill Barnett, who was my mentor when I went in 1966, he's now 96 years old, uh, he, his dream was that we participate in training African nationals to fill the spots that, that we were, were filling. And the population was growing. There weren't many people uh, doing medical care in the country. In 1977, the only training program we had was an enrolled nurses program. By 2011, you can see the list up there. Not only did we have registered nurses, we had interns and family practice programs and orthopedic programs and so on. God had done a mighty work, I think, in answer to Dr. Bill's prayers and the prayers he raised up for it. Now, how did God get us from 1966 to the present? And why did he do it that way? And I have, I'm going to give you a one-sided version of Dick Bransford's theories. Uh, at first, I was a very happy general surgeon. I loved taking out people's stomach. I didn't mind taking, doing a hysterectomy. 
C-sections were just a piece of cake and fun for me. I didn't mind a, a vesicovaginal fistula. And then, lo and behold, uh, I was taken to Caggiato. My twins, who were then five, who are now 34, uh, went along with us. My wife went along. And we had a casual visit there. And the nurse, uh, a Scottish nurse, took us on a tour. And at the end of the tour, she came to this room. This is the room. This is a picture from 1982. And there was this room full of, of Maasai children with braces on their legs and crutches all over the floor. And she walked us outside after that, and she looked us in the eye, and she says, Can you help us? We're taking these patients all over this country, and we can't find anybody to help us with any consistency. And as you may know, and I don't know, I don't want to insult you with this information, but general surgeons are very proud people, and they don't like to say, I don't know what I'm doing. I've never seen an operation on polio or club feet or burn contracture. But rather than admit that, I just said, we'll try, we'll try. And that was the beginning of the best years of my life. Um, An explanation, there was nearly no care for the disabled in Kenya at that time. Uh, My personal care for the disabled had begun recognizing I had no previous experience and I had huge limitations. And visiting surgeons, a couple of them probably in this room or at least at this conference, Dr. Joe Stiles, Lewis Carter, uh, and a variety of other people came and taught us. They said they recognized the fact that Kenya wasn't going to have a sufficient number of specialists. I hesitate to say this, but probably for a century that they, they invested some of their skills in us. And then if you read on down, I have underlined and mistakes, mistakes from my teachers, uh, unfortunate mistakes, but mistakes were my teachers too. So we began with polio and club feet and cleft lips, uh, burn contractures, hypospadias. And then one of my friends after an Urbana conference, I was in Chicago one New Year's Day, he said, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. I said, Rick, no, you get it wrong. Anything worth doing is worth doing well. He said, no, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. I, I couldn't understand what he was saying, but what he was basically saying is something even done poorly is better than nothing being done at all if it was looking at the quality of life and trying to make up for things that, that just weren't there. Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. Now, this little child came in about uh, 18 years ago. Uh, he had fallen into the fire, burned off uh, his scalp, burned down into his skull, and uh, I knew, I mean, the, the anatomy books in my anatomy class told me you've got an inner and outer table of bone. You just take off the outer table, granulation will come. You put a skin graft on that. But when there's no inner and outer table bone at a child's age, when we started taking off that outer table, it was the whole thing. And so you look down and all that was left was dura. And I thought, I never read about this. Rebecca could have probably told me. But we put a mesh split thickness skin graft on the dura, and to my great surprise, it, it took. And about 10 years later, uh, Dr. Lewis Carter came back and t- put in the tissue expanders and took out my beautiful skin graft and put in a, a mesh, and uh, the kid is now about 18 years old. 1998, uh, after much uh, soul-searching, we began Bethany Crippled Children's Center, now the Cure Hospital. We had 30 beds committed to disabled children. Uh, 
uh, we, we had a staff cre- uh, committed to taking care of these special needs kids. And we began. We were happy as a bunch. I mean, just a lot. Our concentration, you can see there, mostly orthopedics. Lewis would come and do some plastics. We had cleft lip teams that came. We began training people in orthopedics. And later, in a full orthopedic residency came there. And then along came a group of people that we didn't expect. Hydrocephalics. Now, one time earlier, we had had a hydrocephalic come to a, a bush clinic. And the nurses had radioed to us and said, uh, uh, can you put on a shunt? And I went to the other surgeon. There was one other surgeon at the time. I said, can we ever put on a shunt? Bob. He said, uh, no, I never even seen one. So I came back and I said, we can't do this. And then we had a snail mail letter. This is long before email. Saying, uh, I'm a uh, neurosurgeon in Los Angeles, a Chinese man. I'm going on safari. Could I have a tour of your hospital? You never do that. <laughs> so my brother lives in Los Angeles, and I cranked my phone, and I got to one operator and said, I'd like to call the United States. She said, I'll call you back. And cranked again, and uh, I talked to my brother, and I said, tell him we'd love to have him come uh, visit. We'd give him a tour. How do you like to put in a shunt? <laughs> so he came, and he left one shunt. And so this volume of patients slowly grew. 1998, the work with disabled was moved to Kajabi Hospital to a newly built uh, Bethany Crippled Children's Center. But in 2004, we'd outgrown it so much. Uh, this was our new clinic, this new hospital. Uh, this, was, uh, this was great. We began with 36 beds. Well, we had 30 beds across the street. We got 36 beds for pediatric patients. We'll never fill them. Five months, we needed 18 more beds. And a year later, we needed 13 more beds. Now we had 97 potential beds for disabled children. And this was, uh, this was the entrance to our children's ward. It says, you're entering the kingdom of children. Jesus is king here. Please treat his children with compassion, kindness, gentleness, and love. Sign God. And I'd take my tour groups around. They want to see the pediatric wards. I'd show them that. I'd say, we walked in one morning. We looked up there. And look what was on the wall. Then I'd say, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> And so our concentration was largely neurosurgery, but the other things you see here. And then we took care of some of the PACS programs for the rotations and pediatrics. And then eventually we have a pediatric surgery and a pediatric neurosurgery fellowship. And the number of children with hydrocephalus continued to grow. Now, I'm not sure I can make this work, but we're going to try this. That didn't work. Okay. Uh, that's my favorite video. It lasts 35 seconds, but one of my patients said that. Uh, anyhow, hydrocephalus in 1997, we put in seven shunts, and we closed the back of eight children with spina bifida. Now, 2011, we put in 792 shunts and closed the back of 299 children with spina bifida. The volume was just totally unexpected. And uh, there's a Dr. Ben Worf who came out and worked in Africa for a while. He's now a neurosurgeon at Harvard. He estimated that there are 45,000 new cases of hydrocephalus in sub-Saharan Africa every year. Now, three-quarters of those are post-infectious, and a quarter of them are considered to be congenital. And uh, I would guess that not more than 5,000 have any care. This is what happened to our volume. And uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't because we knew what we were doing, but because patients had nowhere else to go. And I, that, that 
statistical evaluation, that curve, uh, meant more, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. And then the volume of patients coming with, with uh, spina bifida began to grow. And in 2001, I, I, my son is an orthopedist. I said, Rick, can you find me a book, this book, Pediatric Neurosurgery? And when he called back, and he, or he wrote back, and he says, I can't find that book. So one of my friends, Ben Worf, gave me the address of the chief author there, Leland Albright. I wrote Leland Albright, and I said, uh, can you tell us where we can find your book? And he wrote back, and he said, uh, uh, why don't I just come out and visit you? <laughs> and give me a free book, even. And so he came out, and uh, now Dr. Albright is uh, the head of the program. He is Mr. Pediatric Neurosurgeon of the World as far as the books. And uh, anyhow, if I'd have prayed for a qualified person to fill this, my spot, I couldn't have prayed for anybody with higher qualifications. And I could introduce you to some of my friends. Uh, I'm just going to introduce you to a couple of them. Uh, Rebecca on the left, I've known since she was three months old. She's now a university graduate. She has spina bifida. She heads up a program in, uh, in public relations with disabled children in Tanzania now. The little one, the middle one, John, he's a nurse now. He's an RN. Uh, I know him still, and my mental mind says baby John. Baby John had an epispadius and had a lot of care. And the girl on the right I've also known since she was three months old. She's now a nursing student. Uh, she has spina bifida too. But patients began coming, and these are the countries, and probably it's minus a few. I think we, I've missed a few. There's, that's where they came from. And, uh, you know, the first one came from Senegal. And I, I just was overwhelmed. And I asked myself, why are they coming? We looked, we looked, and we wrote letters, and we couldn't find a place to take care of them. And they came because there just was nearly no care in all of Africa for disabled children. And uh, most of the disabled were just too poor to be able to access care. So in 2010, President Kabaki, the president of Kenya, came out to open our new operating room, and we had the, the privilege of giving him a little tour. And so since he was old, about my age now, but old and couldn't walk very well, uh, we didn't have any elevators. So the only place we could walk into that was fairly flat was the pediatric floor. So we set up this room. We had eight beds in the room. We put all disabled kids in that room. And we walked him around and this is hydrocephalus, spina bifida, burn contracture, this, this, this. And I said to him, you know, there's no hospital of this kind between Cairo and Cape Town. That's Cairo, Egypt in the north and Cape Town, South Africa. And I didn't know whether he heard me or not. But he walked outside and he asked the chief of our hospital and said, is that true? It's true. It's true. I haven't a word of question about that. So disabled people make up between 3 and 10% of the population of the world. This is established figure. Uh, Africa probably has a higher part. One billion people live in Africa as of a couple of years ago. So there's only, there's only 30 to 100 million disabled in Africa. Disabled include children with club feet and all those other diagnoses you can read there. Uh, it's a huge problem. But what are the positive things? What's the silver lining in disability? What are the spiritual implications in working with the disabled? Now, Bethany Kids opened in 2004, and about that time, maybe 2005, we hired our chaplain. She was a 55-year-old, I think, at that time. 
a widowed lady, Mercy. Her name was Mercy. And she had five children. Most all of them graduated already from college at the time. And she said, Dick, I says, we need some disciples. I said, sounds good. What's a disciple? She said, we need to train up some people to go out in the village to follow up our new believers and to follow up our patients and get them back to the clinic and things like that. I said, sounds good, Mercy. She so she's trained about 400 disciples scattered all over the country. In 2010, we saw approximately estimated 5,000 people come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, if you take 5,000 and divide it into, and I'm not sure which way, which gets divided into what, uh, our spiritual budget cost us $3.74 per person who came to the Lord. I don't know what this facility costs, but they don't do it for $3.74. So this is, uh, if you could see that, that map up there, that's part of where our disciples lay in our country. Now, Kenya is the size of the state of Texas, has the population of the state of California. $3.84. So is it coincidence, accident? My wife likes the word providence. Or is it just obedience? Is it just obedience? Uh, I'm going to... i got to run. Theological implications. uh, uh, One of the things, 1982, we got invited to go down to Lama. Were you with us in the Lama trip? Anyhow, uh, Lama is a completely Muslim island. And we went down and uh, we said, could you use an itinerant surgeon coming about every three months for about four or five days. And they said, yes. And we went down there. First visit we came, we met this lady that's sitting out there, young lady, about 18. She had an infection in her knee, and they needed a translator. And I said, why do you need a translator? She says, oh, she only speaks bony. That didn't mean anything to you, probably. But she's an unreached people group. She's a part of the hunters and gatherers. When they said bony, I just shivered all over because this is part of what we were about. And we went back to her village and fitted her with a brace, and she took us back to these little bush villages around. And now, at that time, there's only about somewhere between 3,500 and 5,000 bonies. Now there's a few Christians amongst the bonies. Uh, 1992, there was a huge famine in the northern frontier. All of us had been praying that the door into Somalia would open up. And it did, but it opened outward, and all these people came storming out in the northern deserts of Kenya. And one of the German nurses said, could you come up and look at, at these patients? And we went up and helped them for a little bit. And uh, later that year, in November, we went back. We went out right in the corner of Kenya, Ethiopia, and Somalia. And we couldn't find a gimmick. We couldn't find a method, a, a, a means of putting ourselves there. And so the last night before we were to leave, somebody said, have you talked to Gert Falston? with the United Nations. What good comes out of the United Nations, I ask myself. But I thought, well, it's Sunday evening. We're leaving tomorrow morning. We'll walk down the street. It's terribly hot and terribly dirty. And we walked down the street and knocked on the door of the United Nations and said, uh, would Mr. Falson be here? Every doctor has his card. So I handed him a card. And I said, would Mr. Falson be there? There are only two people in the audience. It's 6.30 at night. And he said, oh, yes, come in. And I went in. And they, Mr. Falson came to the door. He looked over his shoulder. The other man disappeared. He looked at my card. And he says, I'm so happy you've come. 
I'm so happy. The world has sent its people, but the Christians haven't come. And I, I went on my 45 minutes of a guilt trip, and he said, you've got to come. You've got to come. He said, if it's a matter of money, I'll write you a check for $50,000 and get you started. I returned from Mandara and our family went, in the, went to the coast on vacation. It was the very first time we ever stayed in, in a hotel at the coast. It was the first, very first time we were ever had access to a telephone. This is long before cell phones. Your iPhone's a late invention. Anyhow, first time in a hotel, first time with access to a phone. We had an adopted boy, Josh, that was nine months old at the time. He'd only been with us three months. And our two youngest natural kids were 15 years old. Second day, phone rings. Get a call to come to a phone. I never had a call to come to the phone. I'm on vacation at the coast. It was Dr. David Stevens who's speaking here, who was then head of World Medical Missions. He said, uh, uh, would you go to Somalia and uh, be our medical leader? And I said, I couldn't go without the permission of our, hos- our hospital director. He said, That's got- we've already got that. Huh. Uh, who would take my place? He says, oh, we've already got a person ready to come. Bill Becknell is running a booth here. He said, I need to talk to my wife and kids. So I went back to the room, told my wife, and she said, uh, that's fine. Went out after dinner that night, talked to my twins who were 15. And John looked at me and he said, Dad, you've got to go. This is what we've been praying about. Now, let me just tell you, hallelujah, hallelujah, my 15-year-old son. I didn't have a big enough insurance policy that made him valuable to lose me. He he gave me his blessing. My kids sent me off. And this was Somalia. This was Somalia. This was Somalia. Uh, This is what we saw. This is my picture. I took this picture. This is the, the, told me it was the most beautiful hotel in Africa. This is what the town looked like, and I don't know if you can gather that. This is where we had our biggest clinic. This was the theater. This had box seats and a rising stage in the whole. At one point, we would see six, seven hundred patients in there in a the morning. This was Somalia. This was my translator. This is Ahmed. This is Ahmed. One of our translators we asked one time, "Any Christians in Somalia?" They said, "No, not many." We find him, we take him out in the street and shoot him. Ahmed got taken out in the street and shot This was Somalia. Rwanda, my daughter, who was back after one year of nursing school, said, Dad, and we were listening to the radio, he says, we've got to go to Rwanda and see if we can help. The fighting and the genocide was still going on. And so we went with Samaritan's Purse to help for a few weeks, and she stayed the whole summer. This was the headlines. No devils left in hell, the missionary said. They're all in Rwanda. And we spent the summer there. Uh, she spent the summer. I spent a little while. This is uh, Musoni on the right, uh, a little guy with blatant quashy core, little girl to the left, both legs chopped off. This is Uimana. Wife was uh, raped, and husband and all her kids were killed. 1996, Samaritan's Purse had led a team in 95 to Kenya. They said, could we come out and see your work with disabled children, have lunch with you on Sunday? Because we're leaving the next day to go flying somewhere. I said, sure. And they brought out two pastors who were with, with uh, Calvary Chapel. A few months later, they called back and said, uh, could, you, could we come out and visit you? I said, sure. They came out and said, we're going to Sudan. I said, is there anything I can do to help you? And he says, oh, yes, we need a doctor. <laughs> uh, how are you? I'm fine. But you know, when you ask that, and they say, yes,
And this was the, where we went. We had a church, this is a Catholic church, had a mortar that went through the roof. Uh, we were there in the summer. Uh, my daughter uh, at the top had had one year of college. She was an English major. We taught her to mix vaccines. And the next day she led an immunization team. My daughter in the bottom uh, was a, a nurse by this time, and she led an immunization team. And we took home this little girl. I often say, and some of you have read about Brother Andrew. I said, if Brother Andrew could smuggle Bibles, why can't he smuggle babies? <laughs> and so we took, flew out with this little girl. She was 10 months old, weighed 8 pounds. Uh, we knew she was going to die. And we said, uh, let's just try. And the parents, uh, the, the father, whose mother was dead, the father gave us permission. The governor gave us permission. We took her out. We got to the border and we said, well, maybe we'll go through immigration down to the next place in Nairobi. And this lady hopped in the plane and said, could, we have, could I have a ride down to Nairobi? She was an African lady. She had the right color. <laughs> and we got in the plane just before we got to Nairobi. She walked back to my daughter and said, what do you do with that baby when you get to Nairobi? Bethany said, I don't know. She said, when we get there, you give me the baby. And she walked right through immigration out the other side, and we walked through immigration out the other side. She gives us back our baby, and uh, we take her home. She doubles her weight in a month, and uh, she's now a big girl. She's 18 years old in California. Uh, this is about faith. We won't talk about her. And up there, we showed the Jesus film. Everybody in the audience, including those that were supposed to be pastors, raised their hand. <laughs> they wanted to know Christ. Now, what that all means, I don't know. We can went on working with Samaritan's Purse at Louis, which uh, was a big hospital for a while. This was the Mundry International Airport. Some of you landed at that airport. Uh, Millie and I, this was the chapel. Uh, I got to teach about not the good Samaritan. I got to teach about the good Arab there. This is state-of-the-art. Uh, this is Warren Cooper, who's now in Congo. Uh, it, was a, it was the best thing they had in, in South Sudan at the time. And this is my wife teaching a Bible class. We went there for uh, Y2K. We were there for the New Year. And I want you to tell you, the computers didn't go out, the water didn't stop, nothing quit there because we didn't have any of those things. <laughs> uh, a few days before we got there, they, they landed. Okay, ten minutes. So we had repeated trips to Louis. Biggest scare of my life is I thought I had a case of Ebola. I, I so to speak, wrote my last will and testament. And uh, I reviewed my life. And it wasn't Ebola. <laughs> and then they began bombing Louis. And so I became an advocate for southern Sudan. And I went to Washington a number of times. I met with the people that I wasn't supposed to meet with. I became very political. I didn't run for president, but anyhow, I did. And uh, this was the picture in the Holocaust Museum of what was going on in Sudan at the time. I went and talked to uh, Dr. Bill Frist, uh, who was then the head of the Senate. I said, you know, he had been into Sudan. He said, every time I go to President Bush's office, he asks about Sudan. He asks about Sudan. Um, I represented the disabled. And among my appointments was a visit with the head of the USAID. And I went in, and he was, he was headed to the airport as soon as my interview was over. And he said, uh, he told me, he says, I believe that a peace agreement will be signed in Sudan. He said, would you care to consider caring for the needs of the disabled at all of South Sudan? He said, would you consider helping us begin a medical school in southern Sudan? 
And then, by the way, do you know which is the fastest growing church in the world? It's a church in Sudan. He said, it's a mile wide and an inch deep. And I looked at him. I'm sure my jaw was down on my chest. But anyhow, unfortunately, I did not feel it adequate to do that. Do I regret that? I absolutely regret that. I wish we did. I'd rather, if I had it to do over again, I'd rather fail than do nothing. I'd rather fail than do nothing. But I made a choice there. I made, I, I responded quickly. And so I go back, is it coincidence, accident, providence, or obedience? Uh, next thing came, uh, Mark Newton, who some of you know, a guy named Harry Krauss, uh, said to me, we, we went up to a closed country, 2006, and uh, we got there. We didn't know what we were doing. We got in a the bus. They said, oh, no, you have to have a guard. And we said, we don't need a guard. They said, said, okay, we'll let you stay on here as long as every time you come to a police stop, you take your coat and put it up over your head. So we did. We did. And we went to that country, and the second day we were there, they, there was a young medical student that came, and she says, I've never met a Christian Now, those words ring in my ears to this day. I have never met a Christian. And we began operating and caring for disabled kids and uh, doing a whole variety of different things and teaching. So we were a presence. We provided medical care. We taught. And we shared. How do you share with a country that when we arrive there, our, our our head of our team, who was not with us, but he said, there's not one known Christian in the entire country, either national or extra. And we were a presence. The girl there that's operating opposite me with the pink shawl was about a third-year medical student at the time. Seven years later, she's putting in my shunts for hydrocephalus. She's doing rotating flaps and releasing scar contractures. She's good. She's good. She went to a terrible medical school, but she's good. And these are the type of patients we see. Seagal came about 300 miles to see me. The girl in the left lower quadrant, who in the next two pictures is also her. Uh, I could tell you, Nisa. And I have to remind myself, remember how you've come. And it's not, I love medicine. I love the practice of medicine. I love doing a burn contraction release and putting in a shunt, closing a spina bifida and taking care of a club foot. But that's not the reason I'm there. I'm there to do that. But the real reason is to be Jesus in the flesh amongst these people. How do you speak to a Muslim group? I've learned a little bit at this conference, but I tell people, I'm learning to pray theology. Because they expect me to pray before the operations now. And when I get to the table and I, something's on my mind and all, they turn and look at me, expecting me to pray. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out, you know, I haven't gone from Genesis to Revelation yet, but I'm trying to learn to pray theology to them. The three girls in the bottom are, came out of the laughing room. They came, we had a whole bunch of burn contractors. And every time we come in, those there were four girls in the room. They're all giggling. The girl on the left, Anissa, her request to me was, and those are her hands at the top. She says, "I just want to be able to feed myself." And we needed Lewis up there, <laughs> but it was there's just a lot. She can feed herself now, praise God. But realize we're often 
just preparing the soil, our fruit may come much later, possibly after we're dead. Communication is difficult, a smile, a touch, a kindness. Uh, it may be dangerous for us, but any new believers, I look at that girl that I showed you in the painting, she's like a daughter to me today. And I say to myself, what happens if Decca comes to a living, vital relationship with Jesus Christ? She may lose her life. Am I willing, what part am I willing to participate in her life? Uh, let's see. Our fruit may come later, a com- communication. We just pray that God will be glorified. So what would happen if I'd have been that baseball player? Thousands of disabled kids might not have received any medical care or he would have found another person. In 2010, Mercy and her 5,000 would not have seen 5,000 people come to a living relationship with Christ. These are doodlings from 19, early 1990s. And you can't read it because I didn't take a good enough picture of it. But anyhow, it was my dreams of what was going to happen using the means of working with disabled kids. Most of those dreams have come true. Most of those dreams have come true. Uh, Unreached people groups, our work with disabled has taken us to all these people that had never heard the gospel before. Have they heard the gospel? Not a complete presentation, not a four spiritual laws, but they've heard something. They've seen something. Now, my unfulfilled dreams, the Dab and Kakuma refugee camp, the Dab's the biggest refugee camp in the world, 350,000 Somalis. It's too dangerous to go into right now. Um, 35 to 45 more African countries have nothing for the disabled, or nearly nothing. There are 6,955 unreached people groups in the world. Now, up down in the lower corner, corner, we were just talking about this. We need a remedial training program for, for doctors. We need to take people and train them into doing more things that are simple. I, t- I usually have a slide here that says, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to put in a shunt, a one-way valve. It takes a plumber <laughs> with a little technique on how to handle tissues. Now, this was up at, at Joytown, a school for 320 disabled kids, a kind of an old rusty science. Don't stop dreaming. You guys, pardon me for you that are over 40, you guys are the future. Don't stop dreaming. Now let me just say one quick thing to those of you that are not married. Don't marry the wrong person. Don't marry the wrong person. Some of you didn't want to hear that. And this is my wife. Discover the chocolate side of life. Keep dreaming. Keep dreaming. Now this is a book we read a number of years ago by Don Richardson. I'd recommend it. His story is yet another example of how the concept of a supreme God has existed for centuries in the hundreds of cultures throughout the world. Now, this is a book that's not written yet, Eternal Purpose in Their Being. I've got my name on it for the author, but I haven't written it yet. A supreme God has existed forever, and he has bestowed on each of his children, each of you, a unique gifts and a unique plan for glorifying him. Each of you carries forward into this life something... Before the foundation of the world, before the first animal was made, he was sitting up there designing what he wanted for you. You know, it says in, in Scripture, and I'm, I'm going to abuse Scripture a little bit, in my father's house are many mansions. If not, so I, I've gone there to prepare a place for you. Before he made the first animal, he was preparing that house for you. He was preparing that house for you. I've got a lot of the story, but I won't tell him. What's your gimmick? What gifting has God given to you, or will he help you develop? Many of us began with few natural talents, and I'm in that group. Many of us were not naturally good students. Some of us have failed. 
Some of us have failed. But has not an almighty God, all-knowing God, prepared each of us? What if you tell God, change my life in any way, this is Pierce, you would like so that I might be the best, be able to touch the world for you? This is out of an airport. I'd go, I'd go walking down an airport and I'd see a sign. I'd set all my stuff down, pull a camera out and take pictures. This is one of my pictures. Never have to begin a sentence with, I should have. I should have. And when John said to me, Dad, you've got to go. I, I, I had to go. I had to go. When Bethany said to me, we've got to go into Rwanda, I had to go. Ultimately, you and I want to be successful in God's eyes. Now, I'm going to just say, do you have any questions? I wouldn't trade my life with any one of you. Yes. Uh, the, the girls who were burned, what, what's the history of a lot of those burns? Well, when I first went there, the history was they were working in the kitchen and the fire exploded, and or they, you know, their clothes caught on fire. More ago, probably half of them are suicide attempts, just to be honest with you. Uh, and then usually when they're young teenagers because sometimes they want to be married off to an old man. And they don't decide they don't want to do that path. Other questions? Yes, sir. Right at the end, you kind of dropped your uh, bombshell. You said, don't marry the wrong person. Can you elaborate a little bit? <laughs> 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 you know you can make me a lot of enemies here. <laughs> I just think that uh, sometimes our hormones get ahead of our brain or of our heart. And that uh, really, we want to find a spouse compatible with our ambitions, spiritual ambitions that we think are from God. And if you if you wind up, if you feel God's calling you to Africa, and you marry a gal who wants to live in rural Nebraska, you've got an incompatible marriage. And that if you find somebody whose dreams never go above the roof of the house, if you're a, you're a dreamer, I mean, if, if you have if you have thoughts that you want to change the world, and you get tied down into earning two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, I can tell you about a personal friend who probably makes well over a million dollars a year. He's missed his dream. I know him intimately. He's missed his dream. And he probably married the wrong girl. Questions? Yes, ma'am. Say, say again. Okay, did anybody down there hear that? No. Don't settle for silver when God has gold for you. Now, she's not talking about the amount of paycheck. So. <laughs> Any other questions? The girls that I showed you there, Rebecca and Gladys, and if I had shown you Francisca, Francisca, Samburu, young lady, they all had spina bifida. They're all my daughters. They all are in continental urine, in continental stool. They've accommodated for it. Francisca, who's now about 28, uh, she tried to commit suicide at least a couple of times. Her, when she was born, her father wanted to put her in the bush so the hyenas would eat her. And her mother saved her life. And when she was about 18, she came with this big ulcer in her leg. We did an amputation. She came to work in our, our playroom. 
and uh, praise God. And, and we had a, a physiatrist from Michigan that came, taught her how to do clean intermittent catheterization. She's crying. And she starts saying, and she says this, if you go on that website and look at her Bethany kids and look under Francisco, she said, hmm, what if I could get married? Did she get married? Yep. Did she have a baby? Yep. Jeremy, I got a new grandchild, so to speak. Uh, these are special people. These are special people. And we have a means of touching the lives of people like that. Especially. We've often said to our disabled people uh, and mothers as they bring their disabled child in, now this is what I want to tell you. Your child, they have spines that may never walk, may never have be able to control a urine stool, but maybe the smartest person in the room. We want to know if you would like us to operate on We want you not to consider the finances. If you can help us later, praise God, but we don't want that to be your assignment. It's not like a real socialist comment. So and uh, then I also tell them, I said, I'm not a neurosurgeon. If you can afford it, there's neurosurgeons in Nairobi. Nearly none of them go that way. And uh, we've never had to turn away a child who needed an operation because of lack of money. God's already provided. And I have a little bad theology. My wife doesn't like it. I say, if God owns the cattle in a thousand hills, he may have to sell a few for me. Any other questions? It's a great, if, if you're interested, two or three things. If you're, uh, if you're thinking of doing these operations, this is all the, the DVDs I have. This is the homemade version of how to put in a shunt. This is the homemade version of what nurses need to do to help you. This is the homemade version of anesthesia. So they're right up here. Uh, have a few cards here. We'll set them right here on the table. Uh, and if you're interested in this, write me. Write me. Uh, I'm interested in selling my product. And I'm interested in taking this and saying, and they praise the God of Israel. And that's what we're after. Thank you for being here. God bless you.